This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. We will next be talking with Ashley Bittner, who is a principal at Owl Ventures, and we'll talk about education and, again, talking about money going to where it needs to go. That's part of what Ashley does. Absolutely. So, Welcome to the show, Ashley. Hi. Great Hi. to be here. Good to, good to see you again. When would you get in? Oh, I took a red eye yesterday um, <laughs> from San Francisco oh, out, to, out to Philly. So. <laughs> Sam, Cheryl likes the red eye, too, and I oh, – gosh, I cannot do it. <laughs> I always say it's my last one, and then a month later I'll play it again. <laughs> yeah, I guess for me I get more time in San Francisco, and then I get um, – you know, I, if I was coming in late anyhow, I would be disoriented. So I think it's it's just part of the yeah. – I get used to it. I always pretend I'm traveling to, like, Europe rather than <laughs> just coming back to Philadelphia. So, Ashley, we we asked Samra, too, when, when you were last on campus. You mm-hmm. actually sort of make it back – not I wouldn't say you regularly, but you, you've been back. I was here uh, in November. I did two uh, events here, one around – I talked to the uh, Impact Investing Group around diligence and how you set that up and how you think about that in early-stage companies. Thank you for and doing then, that. Thank you. Yeah. And then I also did a panel with One Wharton, which was around gender and tech. Um, we got to moderate a panel of women who are investors or CEOs um, and some of the – um, challenges and opportunities that that presents. And it was really great, actually. It was a packed house. It's probably the big, one of the most um, full classrooms I've seen at Wharton. So it was really great to see that uh, move towards folks thinking about diversity, inclusion, and tech, and all the, like, uh, just the evolution at Wharton that way. Interesting, interesting. So what is Owl Ventures? Um, and at some question. point I'm going to make you talk about your path because your path is just perfect. Sure, thank you. <laughs> um, so Owl Ventures, we're a venture capital fund. We're based in uh, the Bay Area. So we have offices in San Francisco and Palo Alto. We uh, focus exclusively on education technology. Um, we invest, we say, post-product market fit when companies have functioning business models and repeatable and scalable sales processes. So in practice, that means leading uh, typically Series A, Series B rounds up to Series C. We usually write checks between 5 and $15 million um, in helping companies, once they're in market and they have that sales process down, really take it to the next level. Um, one thing that's differentiating about us, uh, given this kind of conversation, is that we also think about outcomes and access of the products we're investing in, and we think of that as being core to competitive advantage. So we are a venture fund. We're not an impact fund, quote-unquote, but we think about um, how you measure that effectiveness and who is getting access to that as being drivers of the business itself. Um, we have now $285 million under management. It's one of the largest wow. scaled um, venture funds focused on education. Um, and we are, oh my gosh, 21 investments in since 2014, um, and at a at a fast clip. So it's been it's been quite a ride, and it's been a really fun uh, fun opportunity. Well, we had asked Samra to talk a little bit about her background and how mm-hmm. she ended up where she did, and I think um, your path was was just so well designed and, so, <laughs> and such a perfect path that I'd love you to talk a little sure. bit about how you ended up where you are. Absolutely. And I'd love to think that I designed it, but it uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of uh, interesting, yeah. uh, an interesting journey, but a, a very fun one. Um, so I'll go backwards. Um, so I've been at OWL since 2015. Um, prior to OWL, um, I was in Obama administration, White House appointee to the Office of Innovation for Education. Uh, which is a mouthful, but I was a political appointee there um, where I was working uh, primarily um, 
with Ted Mitchell, who is the undersecretary on some of the innovation initiatives for, from the Higher Education Act, something called Experimental Sites. We can talk about it later if you want. <laughs> but I actually had interned for uh, his previous organization, New Schools Venture Fund, when I was at Wharton. And I got supported by, um, I forget what it's called now, but the um, funding that they allow you to go do a social impact-focused yeah. um, internship. And there's no way I could have done that if I hadn't had that support from Wharton to like, mm. go intern at that fund. I also interned at a tech company at that time and also at a charter school. So I got to really try out all these different innovative paths within education. So I've been doing something related to education for about 10 years now. Um, so Austin Innovation, prior to that, I was at the Boston Consulting Group. I was in the D.C. office um, where I had worked on some education uh, projects as well as private equity because I, from my experience at Wharton, knew I wanted to eventually go into investing. But at that time in 2013, there just wasn't as much scaled capital in the space, and we can talk about why that is, right. largely related to infrastructure investments from the federal government between 2010 and 2013. Um, but went to BCG, but I had started out my career at, through Teach for America. I taught in the Bronx, some of the great social studies, um, and got really interested from that experience in two things. One, uh, tech and its ability to help scale resources uh, to help teachers better do their jobs and just empower those folks, um, as well as operations and thinking about how you run schools more effectively. Um, so, so it sounds like there's been a clear through line to mm -hmm. some degree, but Teach for America, mm -hmm. to the Boston Consulting Group, yes. to the White House, yes. or to the Department of Education. Yes. White House, yes. <laughs> yeah. To... Um, to owl. owl. Yes. Okay. So about, yeah, something related to education, but practitioner, business, policy. Um, I always thought I was going to be a lawyer. I'm glad I'm not. No <laughs> offense to any lawyers. Um, but uh, it was uh, an interesting path that's kind of, to your point, touched education through. So give us a, an example, if you can, of a specific investment. Because I think that when people think about technology and education, they're mostly thinking, oh, internet access and maybe tablets, right? Yeah. Let me give, I'll give two um, of our more, two recent ones. Um, so we invest across the education spectrum from early learning through adult learning and career mobility. Um, education for, uh, for folks, it touches most of people's lives, right? And it's a very undercapitalized market in terms of venture until recently. So um, ed education is the second largest uh, spend after healthcare worldwide. It's about a $6 trillion market, and it's slowly moving digital. Um, now it's rapidly moving digital, but it's been taking quite a bit of time. Um, so we, like I said, invest across that spectrum. Uh, one K-12 company, I'll give an example that we led in the fall. It's called Kidum. Uh, Kidum is a classroom operating system. It's allowing teachers to kind of make sense of all this noise that has popped up in the, as the Internet goes into school. So what it allows you to do is uh, plan your curriculum, uh, get your standards, plan your actual what you're going to do, um, distribute resources or assignments to students, assess what they're doing, and then analyze on the classroom level. What we saw in the proliferation of content, both free and paid because of internet, um, is just teachers having a really hard time making sense of it and organizing their classrooms and uh, being able to really pick the highest it's quality an resources. It's an yeah. overload, and it's really hard. And so what they end up doing is going to Pinterest, they call it the Pinterest problem, finding lesson plans, um, or which is not actually a bad thing, but if it's not high quality, it can be a bad thing. And um, just not really having systems to manage all of that. So Kidum mm -hmm. is content agnostic, but allows you to manage. What was amazing about this company, one of the fastest growing that we've seen, has gone probably like 70% of classrooms in the U.S. 70%? Um, 70%. No, and very, like, practically no spend on marketing. We let their Series B, Kosla had done their seed in Series A, um, and we're really excited about this company, just solving such an incredible pain point 
for teachers. And the district is now purchasing because they can now see what is happening in classrooms, which they couldn't really before. Man, it's so interesting because, you know, with the Wharton Impact Investing Partners Group that mm-hmm. you, you've worked with um, and been a part of, were you part of the... the... I worked with education folks there, but wasn't um, in the day-to-day of it because uh, I had a joint degree, so I was traveling back and forth. Got it. But, you know, in the education space, when we look at deals, like I find so many ed tech companies not solving real problems. Yes. Like they, they think they come in and they're not, mm-hmm. it's not a real pain point. This is very true. A lot of times people, <laughs> it's funny, I'll ask folks like, well, who did you design it for? Who's it for? And like a lot of people, I was talking to a, um, an academic the other day who really wants to apply AI to, I forget exactly what they're doing, but I was like, well, you know, who is, who did you solve this? Who has, what's the pain point and who, and, and who, how are you going to sell it? And it was so funny because they just didn't think that way about it. It was much it's a more cool like, thing. here's the thing I want to do, but it wasn't with the thought of like, who are you going to actually sell it to? Right. Um, and whose pain point are you solving? So I think entrepreneurs who really can uh, focus on identifying very clear pain points um, and solving in the way that makes sense to teachers have gotten like, we've seen our companies just grow incredibly fast. Um, when they've really been able to identify those pain points. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. This is our special alumni reunion weekend show. We're usually live on Thursdays, but now it's Saturday and we're here. And so, Ashley, um, when I think about EdTech 2 or or selling into schools, Mm -hmm. the sales cycle is one of the more Mm -hmm. difficult things. So I just want to ask sort of a technical question while you're there. And the sales cycle is hard just because they're big and the timing. The Mm -hmm. timing of who's... Like, what's your point of entry? Is it the mm-hmm. teacher? Is it the mm-hmm. principal? Is it the superintendent? Or chief technology mm-hmm. officer? Parents? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you all think about that? Yeah. It, it, it may not be one size fits all, but... Yeah, it's not. Um, well, let me talk about um, one change, and that's kind of shifted business models. So what we saw between... In 2010, you know, like fewer than 30% of schools had high-speed broadband. Now it's close to 95%. Um, so it's created this that internet rollout, which was cost billions of dollars from the, the Obama administration, views as an equity issue. Um, plus the advent of low uh, low price devices, so we've seen Chromebooks and other devices mm-hmm. proliferate mm-hmm. in schools. So now you have a system, you have just all new infrastructure, which allows companies. The one I was talking about, Kidom, um, is free to teachers. It's monetized at the district level, but they're able to. Uh, they have so much use among teachers that it's the district then can purchase, and it's really driven that direction. Same with a company like Newzella, which is a differentiated literacy platform, content's free to teachers, the premium features a school or district will buy, but it's because it's getting widespread adoption at the teacher at the grassroots level that then you can then sell at the uh, school or district. Mm -hmm. Um, Stepping back, though, the way you kind of think about that, um, this is going to sound really wonky, but... We love wonky. (laughs) The bottoms up usually works for products like that where it's supplementary, it's not core. So you can then think about um, solving, to your point, like who's the, what pain point. These are kind of teacher-focused products. And you get widespread adoption among those folks, and then you can leverage that to do the school or the district sale. Mm-hmm. Um, our products now um, are not like being purchased by the teacher themselves, typically. Um, but if you're doing a core curriculum, like Accelerate Learning, which is a high-quality STEM curriculum that's just getting widespread adoption, they are going through a traditional curriculum adoption cycle. Um, but they are winning because they're you know, digital first, high quality content, better, like lower price point, um, can more easily differentiate it, and they're just winning in the adoption. So it, it te- the business model should align with who the user is and if it's a supplementary or core product, and that will dictate the, the sales cycle you go through. And so I, a little, I wouldn't say a technical question, but you, you know, you are 
you care about impact, you know, the outcomes of the, the products that you're in or the companies that you're investing in, but you don't consider yourself necessarily an impact and label yourself as an impact investor per se. Um, how do you think about impact in, you know, in terms of that value going hand in hand mm-hmm. of outcomes, because that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. If you're seeing success in learning right. outcomes or whatever mm-hmm. that the outcome might be, the you more think you there's do. more adoption, yes. like you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. So how do you think about that? Yeah. So the way that we, uh, it's going to be a slightly technical answer as well, but the way that we think about it is we want to think about what's the right type of rigor around research for the type of company. Um, and so we actually Thank use, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it sounds like a little silly, but we don't, so we don't try to like roll up metrics across the portfolio because we have some companies that are, you know, consumer facing early learning. And then we have, you know, adult learning, career mobility, upskilling platforms that are selling to enterprise companies. And so it doesn't make sense to try to like align those two. Quizlet I mean, has- everyone wants to. I know. And Quizlet has like 35 million users in 130 countries. We're not doing a randomized control trial, right? Like it doesn't make <laughs> sense. But um, we do use a spectrum. So we think about it um, across four main buckets around like descriptive data, anecdotal, correlational, causal. Some of our companies have done RCTs because it makes sense, but some it will not. And so we also think about this stage. So if you're a series A company, it's probably not going to be like- you know, you have a couple million in revenue, maybe you're probably not spending $500,000 on an RCT. So thinking about how do you really align the rigor of the research with the type of company it is and um, who they're serving. Um, so we think about pushing them across the, the spectrum, though, to where it makes sense. So each year, how do you get more rigorous? And so maybe you did internal, um, you did surveys of parents and it was internally uh, done. And then the next year you're working with an outside partner to have external validation. Um, you might have started with a, like a descriptive study of the students and now you're moving up to that correlational where you're actually seeing if this is driving an improvement in reading levels. And the following year you're doing RCT. That's as, a really a, smart strategy. Well, and as an investor, mm-hmm. are you fine with capital use, tor- you know, towards those types of activities or? We, we discuss it. We see what's the best. Uh, so c- certainly our companies have paid for it. The other thing I'd say that we're very lucky to have is a really great set of limited partners who uh, some of our investors uh, invest specifically because they're interested in thinking about uh, developing this data-driven, efficacy-driven marketplace. And so some of those folks are their LLCs or they do philanthropic giving and for-profit investing from their like family office. So it might be both to drive their returns, but also they have philanthropic uh, mission education. So some of those folks have actually partnered with our companies to help fund uh, studies. Mm. Okay. So we see both, but we work with our companies on that. We meet quarterly with these particular limited partners. And then, then I work with like in June, end of June, I'll be having two of our companies come in and um, helping them develop proposals around research for their products, and then we'll help figure out how they're going to finance that. So um, I'd say we are very specific to the company. We don't try to roll it up. We think about um, rigor on a spectrum, and we try to align it with where that company is in their life cycle as well as like just what makes sense for the type of product it is. Cheryl, I'm bursting with joy. Just, <laughs> I could talk to I'm Ashley sorry, all day. I know. Oh, it's a little verklempt. <laughs> It's all Cheryl. (laughs) Well, but I think that's, I I was really sort of admiring the thought about both the uh, progression Mm -hmm. of the impact, but also trying to say, okay, now let's think about what a research project might be and let's find somebody to fund it. That's a great place for philanthropy to play a role, right? Because it's sort of like, this, this is something that can help not just this company, but the entire field. Why wouldn't you want to do that? Yes. Well, that's so exciting. So you're here on campus for reunion. We've yes. been talking about your job, which yes. I'm sure you'll talk plenty of out there, too. <laughs> but what are you most excited about? 
Oh, it's been really – so I'd say it's just fun to see um, – I, I am very lucky that I get to see a lot of my Wharton classmates both in work settings and just um, outside of work. We've done a good job of staying in touch. Well, you're I in also, San Francisco, and a lot of people go there, and we have our SoCap yeah. reunion there as yeah, well. Yeah, it's so fun. We have a great time. Um, I also think it's just a fun – this is my five-year reunion – uh, which is crazy. But what I also really love seeing is that we're kind of all getting in these places in our careers where folks are kind of decide they've done, you know, because they've kind of decided this is what they want to focus on. And it's been fun to see um, some partnerships happen in a work setting too, where friends are now in places where they're limited partners or they're um, at foundations or, or those type of places. And we're able to really collaborate in this new way as we're getting kind of progressing in our career. So that's been really And that fun. Wharton network really uh, yeah. tapping into it, that, yeah. So, well, so And true. it's really great that now in the Wharton network is this great social impact network. And mm-hmm. that's really, really exciting. It's been really great. It's been very helpful um, in thinking about, I mean, the Wharton grad uh, sent me the latest company I just invested in, uh, which is great. Uh, you know, we have a lot of um, interesting partnerships that are coming from that. So it's been, a, it's just a great network. So we're going to have to take a break uh, in just a few seconds. But, give this, you know, I asked uh, uh, Sambro some what advice she would give an MBA. Yeah. I think she did a good job. What advice would you give? Um, so a lot of the – some of the advice I give to folks is a lot of people are interested in venture, and I think that's um, – it's a really fun field. Um, but I think about two things. One, um, I think in the longer term, thinking about where you add unique value I think is really interesting. Um, and so what – what is different about your background and your set of skills that you're going to bring to an organization? I think that really helps people feel fulfilled versus like, I want to, I don't know. I think some people don't really view it as like what, what is unique about them that they're bringing to an organization and kind of having a strong narrative and a point of view about that. The other thing um, I'd say is um, really think about what aspects of a job, not like the mission orientation really matters, I think, but also what do you actually do day to day? Like a lot of people and they're like, I want to do venture. I'm like, what is it that you think I do every day? I look at financial models. I help That's hire CFOs. Like I, you know, it's not like I'm just like thinking about imp- I do think about impact all day, but like there's a lot of technical things that you're doing and it varies a lot fun to fun of what you actually do. Mm-hmm. So I try to also encourage people to think about what kind of tasks do you like? And also um, what type of people do you want to work with? Because those type of that will also be really important to thinking about if you're happy in a role versus just the um, mission alignment and or the like sparkliness of the job. Well, so. Cheryl, I'm really glad to know that you're the type of people that I want to work with. <laughs> Thank you so much. And, and that that's a perfect way to take a break. Uh, we're going to take it. We've been talking with Ashley Bittner, a Wharton grad, principal at Owl Ventures. We're going to take a short break and then return to our special reunion weekend. Show of Dollars and Change. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 